government is simply a, a logical outcome of what Israel is uh, and what is it has become, uh, which is Jewish supremacist apartheid state. I mean, you know, there is really no other way of describing it. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. And I'm Asa Winstanley. Welcome back to the Electronic Intifada podcast. We're delighted to be joined today by our own colleague, Omar Karmi, associate editor here at the Electronic Intifada, who is just in Palestine. Omar, thank you so much and welcome back to the podcast. It's a pleasure as always. The last month in particular has been particularly gruesome for Palestine. Uh, Tell us about the atmosphere on the ground when you were there, especially in occupied Jerusalem. Tell us why you were there in the first place. Well, uh, I went there to to visit family. I hadn't been there for 10 years, so it's been quite a while since I was there. And uh, I arrived on the day of the uh, Al-Aqsa raid, when Israeli police decided they wanted to beat up handcuffed um, uh, worshippers at Al-Aqsa in Jerusalem, and uh, in order to, of course, uh, bring uh, Jewish uh, nationalists to the Al-Aqsa and lay claim to the land. Um, So that was the first day I was there. I was in Ramallah, though. So Ramallah is a bit of a bubble, so you didn't actually feel it. And in an odd kind of a way, when you're in Ramallah, you kind of feel more distant from everything that's going on than than if you're outside, which is interesting. And I can't quite explain that, so I won't try. Um, but mm. but that's but that's where I was. So um, so that was that was that was my welcome home, if you like, uh, and uh, I did get to Jerusalem uh, the following week and I went with a dear friend of mine um, uh, who brought me, who lives right next to the uh, Al-Aqsa uh, and we went to Al-Aqsa and, his, uh, and we went to see the clinic which is right next to the mosque where the Israeli police raided um, and uh, you know, the clinic has been cleaned up now, but I was shown footage of what happened on and the d- destruction, not what happened, but the destruction that was there as a result of what happened. And one of the things they'd done, there's a plaster wall between the clinic and the mosque itself, which had been broken down. Uh, and there was just a big hole. And that's how they managed to get in, because they had closed all the doors uh, and barricaded themselves in uh, when the police came. Well, well, I say police, I'm sorry, I should say security forces, um, because it's not police, it's occupied territory. Um, And so there was a big hole in the wall that they had knocked through the wall in order to get in and in order to uh, arrest people. That hole, when I visited, had been blocked by a sort of thing, put a big border. I think I was there on a Wednesday or a Thursday. This is all during Ramadan. So the, the fact, there's one thing that needs to be said. A couple of things need to be said about Al-Aqsa, actually, that people don't seem to understand. One is, during Ramadan, especially the second half of Ramadan, it's very normal. It's, in fact, it's, it's asked of believers to pray all the time. So it's very normal for people to stay 
at a mosque overnight and pray, especially a, a site that is as important as Al-Aqsa is to Muslims. Um, which is and, and yet we saw Israeli propagandists all over social media saying that Palestinian rioters had barricaded themselves into exactly. the mosque. Exactly. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. This is, this is, I mean, it, it's always, it's always portrayed as, as provocateurs at the mosque. But actually, during Ramadan, at least, I mean, you know, think about it. Sun, sunrise is about five o'clock. You need to do your prayers before sunrise. It's almost impossible for Palestinians from the rest of the West Bank to get to Al-Aqsa in the first place. If you're serious, you'd want to stay there in order to pray and to make sure you can make the morning prayer. Of course, the protests start as a result of what are incredibly provocative visits by um, by people, by mostly Jews, uh, who lay claim to the mosque as their own. Uh, and it's that fact more than the visit that's important. I mean, it's fine. There are there are uh, arrangements to be made if you're a tourist. You can go and visit the mosque. You can go and have a look. All of these things are fine. But if you go and have a look and you are basically claiming this as your own own thing, then obviously it's provocative and obviously it's going to cause a lot of uh, resistance, which is exactly what it's done. Right. Yeah, and I think it's important to say that these are uh, not religious visits. These are about nationalism. They're about right. Jewish nationalism as it perceives itself. They're about Zionism and the claim made that every inch of the so-called land of Israel belongs to Israel and that Palestinians don't have any kind of real claim to it. Um, traditionally in Judaism, Jews are not meant to go to that's that area. Yeah. That's yeah, right. Yeah. So, so ultra-Orthodox and other people will refuse to go. Right. There's no temple. It's, it's you know, there, there is the, uh, the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall, where people will go. Uh, which is separated slightly and it's down. Um, but to actually step foot on Al-Aqsa is not is is prohibited by some uh, within Judaism, but clearly not by all. And so the 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 visits there are certainly acclaimed territory, right. uh, which is why they always kick off a lot of protests. And uh, this time was no different. So when I went there, though. This was about a week after the uh, uh, protests we saw and the very harsh uh, security forces clampdown we saw and the response which came from Lebanon and Gaza. Uh, at the time, the talk at Al-Aqsa was all about this was going to happen again. They're going to reopen the visits and people were preparing themselves they were sitting, um, they were waiting. Some people were were uh, praying all night at the mosque in part to be there. Um, but it didn't happen. Uh, there was a visit the next day, but it didn't spark any major protests. It passed off fairly peacefully, in part, I think, because the response, the first response, I think a lot of people looked back to 2021 and thought it's going to kick off again in the way it did then. But I think that actually, and interestingly, there is a, 
a big division in Israel. Let's face it, it's Israel which ultimately determines whether or not things kick off or not. There's a big division in Israel between the security establishment and the present government. which The Israeli deep state. Exactly. Which even to the Israeli security establishment is far too radical and putting them in a difficult position. So I think the 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 quite sort of calm response, you know, you know, let's put it this way, the rockets didn't kill anybody, the Israeli response didn't kill anybody. It gave everybody an opportunity to say, like, we've had our say. The key question was, what were the Israelis going to do after that? And they didn't, really. So I would say, yes, we have one more day of Ramadan, but still, um, I think everybody stepped back from the brink. Uh, and in part, that is explained by the division in Israel. Certainly yeah. the response from Palestinians and others was the same as it always was. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that. Um, you know, Israel is claiming that it has a, a constitutional crisis um, happening. Of course, Israel doesn't even have a constitution to speak of because it won't declare its own borders. It, it can't. Um, and uh, and and you know these these protests are still happening in the streets of Tel Aviv. Um, can you talk about what how you feel? Um, what you feel is is playing out right now in terms of uh, Israel's own you know internal uh, divisions between the 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 far right and the far far right. Um, yeah, I mean it's hard to say. I didn't spend that much time. Um, within Israel to speak to people within 48 territory. Um, I think I think what's clear is that you have a government now that is absolutely um, uh, nakedly honest about what it wants and what Israel wants uh, to a large degree uh, and why. And that honesty or that, that sort of upfrontness, if you like, has put uh, its allies more than anything else in a very embarrassing position. Because, you know, people like uh, Itamar Ben-Gurir and, um, and Smotrich uh, are not uh, hypocrites in the sense that they don't try and hide who they are, what they think. Uh, they're very honest about it. And they are Jewish supremacists and they do believe, truly believe, that Jews have more rights to the land than the land's native population, basically, you know, based on divine promise and pre-world history. And, uh, you know, remarkably, this has always been, obviously, Zionist Israel's sort of um, raison d'etre, but it's taken a very long time and nobody likes to be confronted with this kind of supremacism because it looks ugly. And... I think if we look back to the Aqaba and uh, Sheikh, uh, sorry, um, Chama Sheikh uh, meetings earlier in last month, in fact, where the Americans basically uh, knocked heads together and said, we don't want anything happening during Ramadan. It's not the right time. Uh, the, it was, I think it was made clear to the Israeli security establishment the Americans weren't happy um, with what's happening. And so you have at the moment, and one of the best uh, 
examples of that is the reinstatement of the Israeli defense minister uh, by Netanyahu, who had fired him. Uh, you have at the moment a division between Israel's security establishment, that is the army, the intelligence, and, and so on, and the Israeli government, which is unusual, uh, because the two normally are very close. Uh, and that, more than anything else, to me, explains why this Ramadan passed off more peacefully than than we've seen in previous years. Uh, that, and the fact that um, I think even in, in previous years, you would have, the fact that you had a response from Lebanon is important, but it's not the determining factor here, as far as I can see. The determining factor is a security establishment in Israel basically trying to tell the government, we're not going to do what you want at this time. Can you talk a little bit about how you see, uh, you know, the Israeli government as it is now um, and and you know what Palestinians, especially in the West Bank and Gaza, are uh, are are you know are talking about in terms of like how the government of of the the you know the settle the settler state uh, is functioning or not functioning at this point. Well, I, I think the present government is simply a, a logical outcome of of what Israel is uh, and what is it has become. Uh, which is uh, a, a Jewish supremacist apartheid state. I mean, you know, there is really no other way of describing it. I think the only reason people are talking about this government because it is nakedly so uh, and unashamedly so, and there is no uh, peace process uh, to to sort of uh, mitigate or hide or, or, or conceal what Israel wants. What Israel wants and has always wanted is as much of the land as possible with as few of the people as possible. And that continues to this day. And that continued throughout Oslo. And it, it didn't matter. And I think I think the biggest question to ask of the international community is, if you were genuine about Oslo and a two-state solution, then why are you not punishing Israel for making it impossible at the moment? And what would it take for the international community to say, oh, that's that's too far? I mean, you know, one thing that is very noticeable, and, I, and I've, I've, I've been away, this is my first visit in 10 years. Um, it's incredibly noticeable how particularly the settlements around Jerusalem have grown. I mean, they have grown. You can see them. You can see the spread of them. You can see how far they've gone. You can talk to farmers uh, and villagers, and you know they know they will tell you how much land, how much less land they can now access. Uh, and this is, not, I mean, this is not a secret. This is not, it's not done in the cover, under the cover of dark. It's done absolutely openly, and everybody knows it. Now, given that, given that that is a direct and the most direct contradiction to any two-state uh, outcome. Where are the international actors who say they support this? And it remains, bizarrely, an international consensus, if you like, a two-state solution. So you ask anybody in the State, State Department, you ask anybody at the Foreign Office, you ask anybody at the UN, even the Chinese, 
recently came out saying, you know, we, we will enter in, we will mediate for a two-state solution. It remains the consensus. And yet the ground, the reality on the ground is very much the opposite. That's not to say that you can't move one million settlers out or you're close enough to one million settlers out of occupied territory. You probably could, but it's the most unlikely scenario at the moment. Um, so the paucity of an alternative that is generally accepted on the international stage partly explains this sort of lack of uh, uh, momentum to do anything about it. And of course, the fact that its allies, for whatever reason, seems to, to think that Israel uh, performs a useful function for them. I don't know why. I, I spoke once with a former uh, intelligence officer in the US, and he, he was always puzzled at the uh, efficacy and, and, and what exactly Israel offered the US that other countries didn't offer the US uh, in the region. And, uh, and you know, he reckoned that eventually, but far too late, people would wake up and realize that it was all subterfuge. Um, but I think this government, what this government does do, is it pushes people into uh, allies, uh, into very uncomfortable uh, positions uh, that it's very hard for them to defend. It's very hard for them to justify. You have a nakedly racist government. Um, and why are you supporting these people? Now, I think that's actually bizarrely and oddly more true now of the US than it is in England, where Palestine seems to have slipped entirely beneath the political radar, and there is general consensus in support of Israel, which is odd because that wouldn't have been the case, uh, you know, nine, ten years ago. Yeah, I, I do agree with you on the point about... Uh, Israel's use as uh, a tool of the U.S. empire, and um, I do think that role is exaggerated. You know, there's parts of the British left, in particular, which like to say, "Oh, you know, Israel is a is a puppet of the U.S. and that it's um, you know it's this useful imperial tool and so forth." Um, I really think that's exaggerated. Like, it, of course, Israel likes to portray itself that way at times. Um, because of all this money that it gets from the United States. Um, but, you know, I I do think that role, I think that's more of an ideological role than an actual, you know, because there's this long history of, of Israel acting against U.S. so-called national interests, you know, spying on the U.S. Um, and, and not even, I mean, U.S. citizens, U.S. activists, yes, Um and a British citizens and activists, but even on um, American military secrets that, you know, the whole Jonathan Pollard affair and so forth. And um, there's been, there's been other cases of that, which are not as, um, not as well known and, and tend to involve the Israel lobby. Um, but, uh, you know, you know, there's no doubt Israel had done things in the past for, for US empire, like with support for, death squads in Latin America in the 80s and so forth when it was hard for Congress to do it. But there is a more, you know, there's a more, there's more nuance here, I think, hmm. in yeah. the reality. I think also uh, what you're seeing now is a, is a certain realignment of powers yeah. uh, in the region. And I, and sorry, sorry to cut in again, Omar, but that, that I think that 
is really the reason that history and that kind of tension there is kind of the reason for you seeing um, the support for really support for the <laughs> Israeli protests coming from Europe and oh, yeah. um, the you know the uh, the Biden White House in the US and right. the banging together of heads that you mentioned because they want the Israeli deep state to be in charge. You know, these kind of um, headbangers, the Kahanists are seen as too kind of crude to sustain the settler colonial project in the long term. But yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't even know if, if in the West allies are thinking about the sustainability or otherwise, they're thinking about face and their own face. Right. Um, you know, one thing is, it's, it's fine if, if we can talk about a two-state solution while you're taking more and more land and making it impossible. But if you're actually saying it, and not only that, you're saying it because, well, you think you're better. And on top of that, you're turning Israel from, quote-unquote, a democracy into a uh, autocracy, which is, which is, yeah, we're not talking about Palestinians here, obviously. Uh, it was never a democracy for Palestinians. Um, then they've gone too far. But, but I also think that what we're seeing is, is the uh, a logical outcome. It really is a logical outcome of a momentum that's been built up of de decades of, you know, ethnic cleansing from the beginning, um, a sort of a brainwashing, you know, this 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 rewriting of history, this attempt to make Palestinians disappear as if they never existed, this land without a people, etc. Um, all of this, which was, you know, then turned into, well, you know, Netanyahu is now talking about we're the only ones who developed it and we're the only ones who did, we greened it and all of mm -hmm. this nonsense. It's simply not true. It's, it's a, an attempt at justifying something that is not justifiable. And as Israel has matured, these, these contradictions are becoming clearer and clearer, and they will only become more clear. And the real question to Israel's so-called allies is, how far are you willing to back it? And what does that show about yourself? In Palestine, in the meantime, there's this weird conflict of emotions where the advent of this government, however supremacist it is, and however However, um, I mean, we see how many people have been killed this year already, however brutal it will implement its already brutal occupation. Um, there is a sense that you want it to succeed because you want it to expose what Israel really is. And so Palestinians, I'd say, on the ground are, are very much caught between a situation of uh, uh, bad, everything is bad in the short run. There's, no, no, there's only bad, but worse in the short run in the hope that that'll lead to something better in the longer run. Uh, and those are the choices facing people on, on on the ground. Nothing is good. Everything is yeah. bad. Um, but, you know, it, the, the real question for Palestinians, when, when, when will it be so bad uh, that something will break? Right. And that, I very much got a sense, we, we're reaching a sort of a crucial point at the moment, because the first thing to break is going to be the Palestinian Authority itself. Uh, well, could you talk more about yeah. on that point, Absolutely. the Palestinian Authority, and what is people's attitude in the West Bank, Palestinians' attitude in the West Bank to the Palestinian Authority? You know, 
uh, Mahmoud Abbas is, you know, aging rapidly. I mean, I have to admit, he doesn't look bad for his age. Um, uh, you know, perhaps his uh, weight aside, uh, I'm not saying anything bad about him on those regards, but the, the problem really is his, um, is his policies and the fact that he is really, in my view, uh, you know, a, a puppet, a comprador of the Israeli occupation forces. Yeah. Um, the... But, you know, the, the reality is, be that as it may, the reality is he's, what, 87, 88 now? 89, I think. 89. He's nearly 90 years old. Um, uh, you know, he's not going to be around forever. Um, and what happens to the Palestinian Authority then? You know, what... Um, the, he has no clear... You know, the, the, the Palestinian Authority and even his own Fatah movement is, as you know, driven by internal divisions and there's no clear successor to Mahmoud Abbas, and there's no clear successor that we know of anyway that the US and Europe would prefer. So, you know, what could you talk about that? And could you talk about what, you know, it, during your visit, what people's thoughts were about the fate of the Palestinian Authority? Well, I, th I think, look, there are, there are two, two functions that the Palestinian Authority uh, performs. Uh, one of which is really important, keeping people quiet, and the other one is the one that makes people very unhappy with it. But both of them work together, and, and they come together. So, ultimately, the PA, in the government sector, or the, the public services sector, if you like, is the main employer in Palestine, West Bank. Uh, and you have something like 150,000, 200,000 people who are directly paid a salary. Um, and if your average family size five six people, you're talking about a million people, uh, and that rely on the funding going into the Palestinian Authority in order for wages to be to to be paid. Now these are people who are ordinary people, anything from teachers to to you know uh, people clean the garbage to to, to to road sweepers to security people, of course. Um, but the point is, you've created a dependent economy that's dependent on government functioning to pay uh, uh, the uh, wages. And in addition, with the occupation, this government, so-called government, is dependent on foreign funding uh, or remittances from, from labor in abroad or in Israel uh, or, or within 48, um, and the tax monies they can raise from that. <clears throat> so in effect, what you have is a captive economy uh, an economy that is completely at the mercy of the occupiers because it has no borders, controls no borders. You cannot import, you cannot export without permission of the, of the importers, of the occupier, uh, of the occupying uh, um, authorities. Uh, and largely, your uh, your budget is dependent on funding, uh, aid, uh, financial assistance, or loans from international actors who have been very clear what they expect from the PA and have not hidden it, which is, of course, calm, because you can only negotiate peace in calm. So it's a beautiful sort of circular trap that the PA is in, whatever the intentions are behind the Oslo process, whatever the, the true feelings and motivations of the people who are leading it at the moment. Um, everybody knows this. This is no secret. Everybody is aware of it. Everybody sees it. The real question now, there's no, I mean, there's no support for the PA. But certainly, and there's no, 
I mean, and okay, let me try and separate. There's no support for the for the governance or the leadership of the PA. There is some understanding for the functioning of the PA as as a service provider. Um, there is no support for the PA as a, a security uh, 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 contractor for Israel, um, and which is why we've seen the PA gradually lose control over more. Started with Gaza, of course, and then you know you've you've it lost control over the northern West Bank pretty much, uh, Nablus, Janine, uh, and Hebron appears to be running its own entirely its own race. Um, Hebronites are famously good businessmen, but they keep a very low profile. Even Jericho is seeing, uh, and the Jordan Valley is seeing uh, protests and and armed groups acting outside the PA. That's and, really interesting development because Jericho, of course, was a long a military base for the PA. Absolutely, but it still is, and it's still you still get the training there. And I know from certain security sources uh, that I spoke to. Is the the PA is now trying to find find uh, uh, people recruits who you know they they're trying to vet them so there's there's absolutely no connection to any of the more troublesome factions like Hamas or the PFLP or any others you know they're trying to vet them that they are at least two degrees uh, away from anybody like that and it's not going to happen. It's in. It's an everybody. Every family in the West Bank or in Palestine has at least one member who's Fatah, one member who's Hamas, one member who's Jihad, one member who's PFLP. You know, that's quite common. Put it that way. Um, so the real question in terms of the PA is for how long, particularly with the security uh, forces, for how long will the rank and file accept to, in effect? be treated with disrespect by their countrymen because nobody has any respect for it. Uh, there is, there's no political horizon. It's not as if you're saying, look, you know, stop shooting and we're going to have a state. It's not happening. Everybody knows that it's not happening. So the real question really is, you know, for the individual sole, uh, security person, how much money will it take for them to put aside their fraternal uh, feelings to their fellow uh, Palestinians um, and the quite clear realization that they're acting on behalf of the occupation. Uh, and if there's not enough money for that, then they're not going to do it. And that, that will be the total collapse of the PA. Now, you mentioned Abbas's age and everybody I spoke to is looking to that as a pivotal, a pivotal moment, the the moment that he, one way or another, passes from the scene. Um, and I mean, there are there are no certain people have been positioning themselves. Three names are, are usually uh, uh, mentioned: Saint Sheikh Majid Farage, uh, head of the intelligence; Saint Sheikh, who is Secretary General of the PLO; and uh, Jibril Rajoub, who who has been around for ages. Um, uh, I don't, he's now the head of the Olympic Committee. A um, couple of others, there's some very wealthy families like the Tarawi family. Uh, and further afield, you've got, um, uh, you've got, you've got uh, Mohammed Dahlan, who has been cut out by Fatah, but 
still investing money in the West Bank, uh, by all accounts. Um, so mm. I've heard conflicting things. I mean, the consensus appears to be that Hussein Sheikh is the successor apparent. Uh, he has been promoted. He has been put uh, forward. He's the one who is mostly talking to the press. Um, and so his, his profile is being sort of raised, if you like. However, uh, a, a phone recording of him uh, talking to a colleague was leaked to the press or leaked to social media uh, not long ago, where he appeared to have a rather uh, uh, disrespectful uh, opinion, shall we say, of Mahmoud Abbas. And that seems <laughs> to have led Abbas to push Farash a bit more. Um, what did he say about Abbas? Well, he was basically saying that he slightly lost it. Okay. Wow. Um, now, Hussein Sheikh is, is clearly seems to be the Israelis' preferred. He's the interlocutor with the Israelis, usually. Um, and he also appears to be the Americans' preferred candidate, uh, from what I hear. Uh, I understand that uh, when uh, Abbas went to the UN last year, September for the opening of the UN. Uh, after he left and come back, the Americans asked for Hussein Sheikh to come for talks, mm. which is uh, a clear uh, an indication as any that he's their preferred candidate. So opinions are slightly divided. Some people think, well, look, if the Americans are prepared to put their weight behind him, if the money keeps flowing, they will find a way to uh, divvy up the pie between them, the, the leading contenders, and there will be a fairly smooth transition to the same situation that we have today. I mean, nothing overall is going to change, but but it will be fairly smooth. Quite a few people, more people than people who believe that tend to be from within the security services or, or from within that world, at least. Um, others from the outside, including ex-ministers, uh, academics, activists, etc., seem to think that uh, the passing of Abbas, it's almost impossible that it's going to pass without some kind of friction and some kind of serious friction. As one person put it to me, they're a gang and uh, what always happens with a gang is they'll fight each other. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned Mohammed Dahlan, who was you know infamous as the really brutal leader of the Palestinian Authority security forces for many years in the Gaza Strip, and was responsible for a failed CIA-backed coup in the Gaza Strip. Um, he escaped it, you know, in the was... trunk of a car. Am I remembering that right? Yeah, two thousand six. Oh, no, I think, and I, as, as far as I remember, I was I was in uh, Gaza actually at the time. He was out. He was having. He was out of Gaza. He was yeah. having supposedly having an operation on his back. So he was conveniently out of the Interesting. Gaza Strip at the time of the. <laughs> uh, the the forces loyal to him, right. of course, were were ejected from the Gaza Strip by Hamas. Um, well, without you know revisiting that whole thing but um it's interesting you mentioned it i mean of course you know he's been touted for many it, for, for for some years he was the us's preferred candidate but as you mentioned um we don't have time to get into the whole thing but as you mentioned he was 
ousted from Fatah by uh, Abbas at a certain point some years ago. It's interesting you mentioned that he's making investments in, in the West Bank. What's the nature of those uh, investments? Well, you're talking about hotels. You're talking about that sort of thing. Uh, right. Uh, there is... From is he very, still based in the UAE? He's still based in the UAE. And some mm. people would argue that the the, the, the the driving force between the UAE and Israel normalization agreement was Dahlan. Personally, sense. I think he would certainly have played an instrumental role, I'm sure. But I, I don't know if he'd be the driving force. I don't think the UAE would have done that unless they thought it was in their own interest, somewhere quite tangible, rather than having a potential Palestinian leadership candidate in their pocket. I'm not sure if that's enough of an interest to the UAE. Um, but they have their own issues to deal with. <laughs> but um, uh, I think that... Uh, I think what's really interesting about Romola at the moment, and, and bear in mind, like I say, it's 10 years since I've last been there. It's, it's exploded. Uh, the, the buildings, the hotels, the offices, it, it's absolutely exploded. And... and a lot of these apartment buildings are, are empty. A lot of the office buildings are empty. But but you can you can really see that a lot of money has poured into uh, Ramallah in particular, and it's and you can also see how the settlements have grown because Ramallah has been squeezed. So 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 when you come in through Kalendia now, where it used to be, a, it was always a crap road. It's still a crap road um, mm. because nobody can do actual roadworks because ostensibly it's still under the Jerusalem municipality and of course they won't go there and do the the Israeli Jerusalem municipality but they won't go there and do it so it's still a crap road however around this crap road you've got these enormous I mean we're talking about 20 22 uh, floor apartment blocks that have sprung up they look tottering and I hate to think what would happen if an earthquake hit um but yeah. it, it, it has completely changed the landscape. And you drive into Ramallah, which, you know, once upon a time was a sleepy holiday, Christian Christian holiday town. Exactly, yeah. It is now a sort of a sprawling urban dystopia. Well, it's not quite that <laughs> yeah. Not quite that bad. The weather's still nice. You've still got a few open spaces, but <laughs> um, that's been built up haphazardly all over the place. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's quite remarkable how the urban landscape has has changed so rapidly, and for so little obvious reason. I mean, house prices are going, rents are up, house prices are up. It's expensive. It's expensive to live in Ramallah, but who can afford it? Who is going there? Who's filling all these these hotels? So either there are investors who know a lot more than I do. Or this is a kind of a way to launder money, which is mm. most people there seem to think it is. Yeah. Wouldn't surprise me. I mean, it's been nine years since I was in Palestine, and um, even uh, it, you know, it's it is really interesting to hear about this explosion. But even nine years ago, you know, Ramallah was exploding compared to the when I first went to Palestine in in two thousand five, and the same phenomenon you mentioned of all these high-rise buildings going up in a really ha haphazard fashion and um you know just you know very unregulated very and it, it's mm. i don't know Ramallah is kind of a um it's a really kind of artificial city in a lot of ways because it a lot of the investment and building that goes on there you, you know 
it without the occupation would probably be happening in Jerusalem. And uh, as you said, like Ramallah is this was, you know, a long, once upon a time was this sleepy Christian village. And it still has that kind of historic old city, as it's called there, sort of downtown. But around it is sort of swamped by this, um, you know, dystopia, as you, yeah. as you mentioned. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's an interesting growth. place. There is, there is now a very uh, impressive presidential uh, palace which there never was when I was mm. there. It was always half demolished because Arafat had been there and the Israelis had laid siege to it. But mm. no more. Now you have office buildings with solar power. You have uh, fine grounds and by all accounts, a very impressive Arafat museum. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I didn't have the chance to go and see it. But yes, it, it, it is. It, Ramallah is a bubble because it's trying to present itself as if this is a... A, a, a state a capital in the making or a, mm. a business center right. at least in the making because of course P, uh, the PA still wants to do with the its capital and it's clear too that the reason all that money has flowed into Ramallah is because the Israelis won't allow it to, to flow anywhere else and in fact the entire geography and the entire economy of Ramallah and West Bank General is totally determined by what the Israelis want or don't want and so for instance I was staying in Birnabella, which is a village just north of Ramallah, uh, towards Jerusalem, which in the past was on, it's, it's, it's literally five minutes away from Kalendia. It used to be uh, a village between Ramallah and, and Jerusalem. Uh, and in, during the peace process, it has a lot of uh, Arab and uh, Palestinian Americans. Uh, during the peace process, a lot of money was invested, new buildings was built, precisely because of its proximity to Jerusalem. Loads of apartment blocks were built. And then the Israelis put a wall. So that wall goes straight and cuts off Birnabella completely from Jerusalem. And so what you find towards the and the Jerusalem Tel Aviv highway runs over it uh, with walls around it and, and, and all of that. So all those buildings that were built in the 90s are now empty and derelict. Uh, all that investment that went into the village has, has, has disappeared. And it now takes 45 minutes, uh, what was once five-minute uh, trip, it takes 45 minutes to get to Galandia. And you have to go this tortuous route. So, in you know, that's just a very sort of visceral example of, of how whatever Israel does determines exactly what the Palestinians can or cannot do. And that's what Ramallah is now. Yeah. And I've never seen it as squeezed and as closed off and I've never seen people as despondent as I did this time. It, it's it's um, it's it's a very it's a, it's a very depressing uh, state of affairs. So much so that I asked everybody I met um, how they kept their moods up. Mm. Because yeah, people are exhausted. People are right. exhausted. Yeah. There's no hope. There's no leadership. There's no direction. Uh, there's no help to be found from elsewhere, and. In spite of that, all you have is 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 an Israeli uh, elite that is getting more and more fanatic, more and more racist. Right. Um, so yes, it's a very difficult position. Omar Karmi, uh, you are our dear colleague at the Electronic Intifada. Um, your latest blog post was written last month before you went to Palestine. Uh, it's called The PA Must Stop Playing Israel's Game. We'll have a link to that on 
the podcast post that accompanies this broadcast. Uh, thank you so much, Omar, for all you do. And um, really, really good to hear your analysis from Palestine. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on. I probably spoke for too long. <laughs> Not at all. Not at no, all. <laughs> no, no, no. You... you um... You don't have social media, I don't think. Well, you certainly don't have Twitter. <laughs> the elusive so, Omar Carmi. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we need to have you on more often. We yeah. need to have more of your analysis on. Thank yeah, you. Absolutely. Oh, a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for watching this video. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hit like, leave a comment. These engagements help us with the YouTube algorithm and it helps us to get around Silicon Valley censorship as much as possible. It does make a difference. You can also support our journalism by going to electronicintifada.net and clicking on donate now. Thank you.